Tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning and welcome to Tip Today. Alison here with you this Tuesday morning. Coming up on this morning's show, a busy three hours ahead, we meet the Irish woman saving money by dumpster diving for her Christmas dinner. Ten boys versus ten girls left unsupervised in a house for a week for a social experiment. The results, they're absolute chaos and it's very interesting. We'll be looking more into that later. Our GP, Pat Harold on coals, coughs and hospital trolleys. How do you respond to the question, why aren't you drinking this Christmas? Michael Gearan will be joining us later. Our Christmas cards, a thing of the past. Conor McGregor's comments on mental health and book recommendations this Christmas. Those are just some of the items we will be discussing throughout the morning. Our phone lines are open. You can text or WhatsApp 083 311 Or Emma is standing by to answer your calls on 1800 938 007. We'll also be giving you another chance uh, at our competition today to celebrate 40 years in business. Hall Alarms is giving us €500 Euro cash to give to you. Uh, certainly welcome this week, Christmas week. Uh, we'd be glad to have a hundred, our €500, Euro, wouldn't we? Well, serving commercial, domestic and industrial customers for over 40 years, professional and licensed installers of fire alarms, intruder alarms, CCTV, as well as access control, emergency lighting and gate automation systems. To begin with a chance of winning that €500. Euro. Uh, same as yesterday, we're going to be playing the theme music to some well-known TV shows from the year 1982. That was the year that Hall Alarms was born. So we'll have a daily qualifier each day and the winner will be announced on our special Christmas show on Friday morning. So listen out because at some stage this morning I will be playing today's TV team song. Uh, yesterday's one, we started you off with an easy enough one yesterday. Today's one, a little bit harder. Uh, but if you're having trouble with it, I will give you some clues throughout the morning. But when you do hear it, I need you to send your answer, followed by your name and where you are in the county, to text or WhatsApp. That number again, 083 now, yesterday we covered the cabinet reshuffle. The Shaklia Varadkar, of course, replacing Michal Martin over the weekend. And while a number of ministers changed departments, there was really little, if no change, to the senior ministerial lineup. We had a lot of reaction from our listeners, and Pat joins me to kick off this morning. Pat, good morning. Good morning, Ali. How are you? I'm good. Good to talk to you this morning, Pat. Thanks for joining us. What do you make of this cabinet reshuffle? I presume maybe the thinking of the government is steady as she goes and there's no need to rock the boat and let's keep everything the same because generally it's been going pretty well. But do you think there should have been a complete reshuffle of cabinet? I, I, I know listening to, to, to people out there that, that they were more interested in seeing, right, if there's going to be a change, is there going to be any improvement? But uh, I think it's, it, the way Leo Varadkar looked at it was that uh, you, you have to keep, put it this way to you, you have to, you have to satisfy all your, your other partners in government. And I say steady as she goes is probably the team that he was going to use and leave the ministers as they were. Mm. We all knew that, that, that the finance was going to change anyway. That was going to rotate, as was with the Taoiseach. Um, 
the Minister for Foreign Affairs was, was a good appointment for, for Micheál Martin because he's, he's actually well-liked uh, in Northern Ireland. And, uh, and I know Simon Cole done a fairly good job in Foreign Affairs. Uh, you know, he's switching departments, obviously, just to cater for, for Micheál Martin. But I think Micheál Martin will be a good Minister for Foreign Affairs. He's liked by the unions. Jeffrey uh, Donaldson coming out the other day saying that he was his hero of the week, which is kind of very, very unusual to hear a, a unionist give praise to a, a, an Irish Republican. Mm. You know, so um, not, I, I think that's the steady as she goes was the way that uh, Leah Varadka was going to go ahead with it. Now, there may be changes in, in and possibly changes in uh, junior ministries, which we won't know maybe until tomorrow. That's right. And just looking at the front of the Independent today, it's saying that uh, while Fianna Fáil TDs expect only very minor changes among their own junior ministers, Fine Gael junior ministers could be, a few of them could be up for the chop, including Frank Fian, who's widely expected not to be reappointed as drugs minister. Uh, also, Special Education Minister Josepha Madigan may be dropped, one government source has said. Diaspora Minister Colin Brophy is also said to be under pressure. Um also, uh, they say that uh, Micheál Martin may appoint a Fianna Fáil minister to the role of junior minister in the Department of Foreign Affairs. If I could ask you then, uh, Pat, if you were to make changes to the Cabinet, what changes would you make? Well, that's a tough question, Ali. Um, a very, very tough question. Like, we put, we put it this way to you. Minister, the, the, the health ministry is is the poison chalice for any TD. Absolutely. Take, you know, and I presume that, OK, uh, Stephen Donnelly is inside in that. Uh, nobody was willing to take it over. Um, uh, the bright boy was in there one time was, was Simon Harris, and uh, he got a lambasting uh, because he was in health. And I'd say that it's the poison chalice, so leave it as it is, I presume, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think Stephen Donnelly is doing a sufficient job in health? Uh, it's a tough ministry. Yeah. There's an awful lot of, 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 of... That's a tough department because it is a high ex, expenditure department and damned if you do and damned if you don't uh, spend money in it, you know. So I, I, I don't know. I don't even know who would be capable of looking after uh, the HSE or the Department of Health. Yeah. You know, uh, going back, yeah. going back then, so I'd say to, 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 to Helen McEntee now, I know Helen McEntee now is on maternity leave uh, she's a minister currently without a portfolio. Mm. Uh, you have uh, Simon Harris now taking over her role on, for the next, I think, the six months I think she's out for. So uh, I don't know what, what departments you'd change. Now, housing was another one. Um, now, I think Dan O'Brien is looking between, the, looking between the, the, the lines as regards the amount of housing that has currently been, been built this year I think he's done a quite a good job in comparison to the previous minister that was inside it, uh, Murphy. Uh, he was a Fine Gael minister. So uh, I know now we had the pandemic and now we have the, the war in Ukraine is driving up costs for timber and other building costs. So we'll see what will happen next year. Yeah, now I know the housing portfolio as well. It's a difficult one because the changes that you will enforce as a minister could take years to actually come to fruition and to see. But my concern with Darrell O'Brien is that he's not really, um, he's not really front-facing. I find on the issue, he's not very vocal on what's happening in terms of addressing concerns that people have. It feels a little bit like he's a silent minister when it comes to housing at a time when people need very strong leadership in it and very strong reassurance. Absolutely, I agree with you. Now, I know he was trying to reform the, the, the planning authority um, 
because of there, there was a lot of questions asked in, 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 in planning and he had to deal with that. Now, as you said, I do agree with you. Um, getting the minister out there and explaining what's happening and whatever the case may be, maybe not his forty, but I, I think he's the type of minister that t- that seems to be ploughing on uh, at least as houses being built. But I would like to see a lot more social houses. I would definitely like to see uh, like what happened in, 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 in Tipperary many, many years ago when the houses were being built by the county council. Yeah. Uh, the social housing. And uh, if that could happen, uh, if there was a lot more social housing, it would relieve the pressure on uh, um, the, the citizens of the country. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can I ask um, you as well, Pat, what, how do you feel about having Leo Varadkar back as Taoiseach? Well, that was agreed on. Um, you see, you have a lot of people out there on social media complaining about the fact that there's um, Tweedledum and Tweedledee and they're switching this and switching that. That was agreed uh, in, 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 in 20, uh, whatever it was, 2020, uh, in the formation of the government, that there would be a rotating Taoiseach. Now, I thought Michal Merton done a very, very good job. Now, I may be a little bit biased myself, but I would think that Michal Merton done a very, very good job but it was agreed as the, for government at the time. Uh, we will see how things go. I, I, I think that, that everything seems to be going well. They got over the, the COVID. They got over the... I don't know would I agree that things are going well, though, Pat. We're in the middle of a serious housing crisis, a serious health crisis. I mean, if, if the government is serious about changing that and making it better, surely what's needed is a completely fresh setup and new ministers in those roles. I do, I, okay, um, we would like to see, okay, a cabinet reshuffle, but a cabinet reshuffle inside in the middle of, of a government it was never never really done. You got your five years, and if, okay, if you had a bad performing minister uh, within that five years of government, then maybe they, make, they would make a change then. Uh, that would be the remit of the, of the Taoiseach of the day. But looking at it, uh, that you have a rotation Taoiseach coming in, if he decided to make any changes in the current cabinet inside it, like as if he was dissatisfied on the last two and a half years of government with the, with the ministers that were there, you know. So, mm. like, you have to look at everything. You have to play politics on this. Yeah, but uh, but is that the problem that they are playing politics? Because essentially, the people who will be appointed are the ones who are in their favour. Yeah, well, they are playing politics. Like, if he went on and say whatever it was, and say, no, it makes no difference with ministers whether they're next. Christmas week or the week after Christmas, it makes no difference as far as politics are concerned. That is politics. But if you if you start asking ministers taking over as, as the rotating T-shirt, it would look bad on, on his government. Okay. Well, Pat, uh, Willie's also on the line and he joins me now. Willie, good morning. Morning, Alison. How are you? Good to talk to you this morning. Willie, what's your take on the cabinet reshuffle? Are you happy with, with what was announced or not announced, depending on what way well, you look at it? Look, I suppose it's much ado about nothing really because the few changes that were made were so well flagged in advance. I don't think there was any real surprise. Um, look, two and a half years in, whatever length of time they have to go to an election at some stage, two years, two and a half years, whatever it be. But I think the idea that you can just constantly rotate and rotate and rotate, it's not workable. Like, I mean, the only the only people that plays into the barrow of, I think, is the senior civil servants who will mm. get the first 12 months of a free ride with a new minister and they'll run rings around him again. You know, I just, I just think that would be a disaster. Disaster. Yeah. Look, a lot of areas, and, and look, I'd be broad enough about it. I mean, it's a coalition government. It's, it's, 
it's Fianna Fáil, whatever number it is, it's six or seven, and, and or it's not, it's five, six senior ministers, same with Fianna Gael and a couple of Greens. Look, overall, I think they've been fairly balanced. I think the big, the big fly in the ointment for any government, and this one is no different, is health and housing. And there are massive challenges. Jesus, I mean, it's, it's worldwide, it's right throughout Europe. I mean, the figures are, are stark right through European countries, the increase, huge increase in, in homelessness and, and emergency. You know, the, the housing the housing thing is just worldwide nearly. It's European-wide. It's not here. It's not just one or two countries. And to get the grips, grips with that, look, it's a massive challenge. I mean, the last man before me there spoke about health. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are people who don't want to take on health. They just they dread it. You know, their career is going to be, the, you know, it was, it was branded as the Angola if you took it on. Your but then do we need strong. someone who's strong enough to take it on and with that take on the HSC? I, badly. Badly, yeah. I, I think absolutely. But like the kind of money, that that's the, the kind of investment that's needed. I mean, we see the National Children's Hospital. Finally, it's nearly there. You know, it's within a year or whatever. But like it, it was a 10-year project, nearly $2 billion. You know, it's staggering the amount of money and the amount of commitment has to go into and the length of time it takes to, to deliver these things. But is there plenty of money? It's just not allocated properly. I'd say it's a lot of it. I'd say it's a lot of it. There, is, there seems to be huge bureaucratic waste. Look, I mean, we, we're, we're saying, you know, the HSC is this. Look, I know people who've been through the mill, families who've been through the mill with, with sick children and, and to a man and to a woman, they will tell you Jesus, the service they got, the treatment they got, the care they got was second to none. Like, but all you'll get in the media is the relentless negativity. You know, I, I, I friends and neighbours who, who literally were to hell and back with children in, in severe conditions. And look, some of them had tremendous outcomes, more more or less. Though, but that will tell you the care and the care they got and the treatment they got once they got in and they're in the system, second to none. But, you know, you'll never hear that. I don't know, do I agree with you? I don't know, do I agree with you, Willie? And I have to, what I have to bring up is is my own um, recent experience with the HSC, which wasn't a pleasant one. And I have to stress, there's a lot of families who are facing a lot worse. Mine was very, very minor, but it was very, very frustrating. And what happened was my young lad broke his ankle and had to go for surgery. The surgery was booked for the two weeks. So the day before the surgery, um, we started, you know, we're preparing for him. We had him fasting, all of that. I got a phone call at 10 to 4 to say that his surgery for the next morning had been cancelled. And that was mm-hmm. it. And I had asked, well, who who decided that? Uh, where's the next date? I was told, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You'll have to ring somebody else. This was at 10 to 4. So by the time I started ringing, everyone was gone and I couldn't get one answer off of anybody. And that was that was a, an elective procedure that was cancelled and I couldn't get any answers. And I, I'm, I'm certain that they waited till 10 to 4 to ring me so they wouldn't have to answer any of those questions. And from listeners to this show and callers to this show, that is something that happens an awful lot. Mm. Too much. Yeah, well, look, it, has, it, it is, but you, you said it there, it, it is elective surgery. And look, when the emergency, and I'm not, I'm not you know, it's, it's awful for a family to be built up and waiting and expecting to go in and at the 11th hour it's cancelled. But it is elective surgery. And look, these people, I'm sure, don't make these decisions lightly. If emergency cases and chronic emergency cases land on their desk, 
they have to deal with them. That's true, but you you need to explain to people. You can't just yeah. say it's gone. Tough luck. We'll contact you when we're ready to take it. That there there has yeah. to be someone, yeah. and that's the problem with the HSC. There's there's no one to talk to. It's answering machines and it's emails. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, look, it, it just bureaucracy seems to have just taken hold there. And how how you cut through that, I don't know. But look, I, I don't know. Is it any different? I mean, I'm looking at. Today, I think, across the NHS, across the north and everywhere else, they're going out on strike, the nurses and everything else. You know, it, it's a disaster. Yeah. Up here, it's a disaster everywhere. It's just, it seems to be endemic, no matter where you go. Well, that's health that we, we've mentioned, Willie. Can I ask, mm-hmm. how do you feel about Leo Varadkar coming back as Thishik? Is that something you welcome? Look, uh, mixed bag, to be honest with you, I'm not... Look, personally, it's not I, I, this thing for the last few weeks with the video and all the rest. I, yeah. I, look, I don't get into that. I just think so. It, it's nearly going down the route where where you saw England and everything else going with this tabloid type of a culture. And look, they are entitled to some class of person. Like, but I have uh, there is an issue about it. I mean, the lack of judgment to put himself in the position and the lack of judgment with this whole confidential documents leaking to a personal friend and you know it's just it's appalling lack of judgment but on the other side of it look he, he was t-shocked there when the whole brexit disaster was coming down the line and they did give good and you know it was on a more international basis maybe and maybe the johnny and mary in the street don't really appreciate that i don't know like the so do you feel bad. that the personal stuff should be left out of it when we're making a judgment <laughs> well look I think so, but there is there is another side to that. I mean, he plays the whole social media game to the nth degree when a, when he wants to portray a positive kind of a spin on things. So you can't just say, well, I want it all on one hand, but you can't, uh, no one should cover anything I say, uh, you know, in my private life on the other hand. If you put it out there, literally it's all out there. Yeah, and I don't know if you heard, he was Willie as well, he spoke to us yesterday and he was making the point and there was a huge reaction to it, but basically the crux of what he was saying was that this is an example of the morality, of the moral compass of this person. So why would we want him as leader? Is that something you'd agree with? Look, I don't think you can judge, you know, on on someone's entire character on a snapshot. I mean, have any of us had a night out where we didn't go with Matt here or there? You know, (laughs) This guy is in the public eye. Look, I think it's. I think you're going down a route that that this tabloid type culture, and you, you follow everyone, and you hide in the bushes to get a picture of so and so. It's nothing. It's not something I, I like to see society descending into. But look, there is an issue about his judgment. I, I don't even look. He's not. He's not from the absolutely same background as all the rest of us and that's fine but he was born and raised here you'd imagine like the whole thing there with this RIC commemoration a few years ago like how a T-shot could be so out of touch mm. with the culture of where we've come from to not see where he was going with that yeah it's just staggering but look I mean the other side of it in the early stage of the COVID there two or three years ago he was T-shot there and they did give good and effective leadership you can like, give credit where credit is due to Okay. Willie, thanks for talking to us this morning. Great to talk to you. No problem. No All problem the best. Well. Thanks, Willie. And thanks to Pat as well, who was before. And just to give you some reaction on that. Uh, a listener says, are you joking? I think the reshuffle was an absolute joke. Many changes in departments won't change for this government. Thousands in homelessness, millions on waiting lists, housing targets not being met. The list is endless. That's from Thomas. Um, also, another listener says the HSC is accountable to no one. 
Another listener says, can you ask Willie, will he be running for Fianna Fáil in the next election? Uh, another listener, Leo Baragher is no mandate from the Irish electorate to be in government. Fianna Fáil, or sorry, Fine Gael has had a dismal election. Uh, but he was elected, so he, he does have a mandate. Another listener says, my son and his partner have a new baby, both working full-time jobs and can't afford to save for a deposit to buy for a house uh, because of the rent that they have to pay. We need to take people out of the private rentals that qualify for social housing and put it into council house. No matter what reshuffle you do, you will not change anything unless they change policies. Um, um, yeah, that's about the, the crux of what we're getting this morning. If you want to add to that text or what's up 83 or 1800 We're back after this. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. The Night Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. We were discussing the Cabinet reshuffle. Councillor Shimmy Morris was on to us saying housing and health are in shambles because of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael failed privatisation agenda where they tried to privatise health and social housing. If you're unfortunate enough to be in UHL at the moment, a win is actually getting a trolley. It's so overcrowded. And where is the outcry from our TDs? Keep those texts coming into us 083 311 1311 or 1800 now, a lot of food at Christmas, I think, as we all know, ends up in the bin rather than our bellies. Irish people throw away food worth an estimated 43 million euro during Christmas week. And that uh, equates to 95,000 tonnes of packaging. Marketing manager, the manager, though, her name is Caitlin Wyke, and she believes it doesn't have to be this way. She is a freegan, and she's living in Dublin. She's been dumpster diving for some of her ingredients for a Christmas dinner this year. She joins me on the line now. Caitlin, good morning. Good morning. Good to talk to you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell me, first of all, what is a freegan? So freeganism is something that uh, is it's a bit of a concept. It's a loose concept, but basically it's finding things for free. Um, and looking for things that other people have discarded or other people no longer need um, that you might need and um, going in and picking them up and using them. And would it be all kind of supermarket dumpster diving or would it? Would you just kind of go house to house or what, what way do you do it? <laughs> no, it's definitely, uh, definitely supermarkets. People's household bins are a completely different story. Um, but when you go to uh, the back of supermarkets or, or wherever they're putting their big bins, um, it's a, a completely different kettle of fish to what you'd find at home. Every, everything is packaged. Um, it's just come off the shelves sometimes 20 minutes ago, gone straight into a clean plastic bag and then into some kind of vessel at the back of the supermarket. Um, it's still in its packaging and it's in a plastic bag. It's nowhere near as gross as you think it is. <laughs> yeah, because I imagine well, if I had to crawl into my wheelie bin, I'd probably die inside it with the fumes that would come out of it. But it, it, it's not, it's dry essentially is, is what it is with just the packaging in it, is it? Absolutely. It's as though you've just gone to the supermarket shelves and scooped it all into a big plastic bag. And are you allowed to do that? Great question. 
no. Do you ever get um, haunted? No. So it's it's a little bit sort of vague um, in that it's not a, it's not a criminal offence, um, but basically. If something is going into into bins um, that shouldn't be in there, um, and people see you doing that, most of the time they just kind of give you a bit of a sideways glance and then go on with their lives. Um, no one's really asking any questions. Okay, can you tell me what what are some of the best things you got out of a dumpster? Gosh, I've gotten all sorts of things. I've gotten family sized shepherd's pies that are still frozen. Um, I've gotten entire bags of rice, of pasta. Um, Still sealed, completely fine. Um, cabbages, uh, entire fruit baskets. Wow. Um, toothpaste even. It's pretty random what you'll find. And sometimes it's being thrown away because it's just end of line. So yeah. they've decided to stop stocking something in a supermarket. And so they'll just throw away everything that's on the shelves. Um, one of the best times for chocolate is the week after Easter because everything oh. that has been on the shelves needs to make way for the other things that are going to go back on the shelves. So anything that they haven't sold at a certain point gets scooped off the shelves and just thrown away. That's interesting because I think a lot of people would assume that the the stuff that's going into the dumpster is stuff that's gone off or rotten. No, a lot of it is things that are just being, they're end of line or the packaging is damaged. Um, I got uh, got seven cans of Guinness that were perfectly fine because... When someone had been opening the box with the with the eight packs in, they'd nicked one of the cans, um, and that can had then exploded all over everything else. So the packaging was damaged, and they therefore couldn't sell the remaining seven cans of Guinness. Oh, so what's the prime time then to go dumpster diving? It completely depends on where you are, and um, dumpster diving is not for everyone. There's a lot of other options, um, but if it is something that you're interested in, it depends on the, the location that you're going to. But you really don't have to dumpster dive to dabble in the freaking life. There's also plenty of other ways that you can get free food that doesn't involve a bin. Um, for example, there is a large supermarket chain uh, in Ireland that has partnered with an app called Olio, and all of the food that they would previously have been scooping off the shelves into the bag, into the bin, they're now actually giving to volunteers who come around and collect it directly from the supermarket and list it on the app for free. So it's all exactly the same stuff that I would have previously been digging out of bins. You can now get, without the bin component, for free at the end of the day. And it's the same food that would have been on the shelves an hour earlier. So your food plan then for the week, it wouldn't be something like the rest of us might write a list of what we need to get at the shop, whereas you, you're, you're just seeing what's available and you're working around that. Well, I definitely still try and plan because there's staples, you know. So I'll say I'm going to have pasta with miscellaneous vegetables and then kind of see what's about. Um, so I will still try and have a plan. And then I always try and plan around what I've already got in the fridge as well. So, for example, at the moment, I, I dumpster dive to cabbage um, and it had a, a little bit of um, freezer burn on one side, which is why it was thrown out. But peel off the outside leaves and I now have a perfectly good cabbage. So I'm planning meals around trying to use up that cabbage as well as using whatever it is that I'm finding day to day. Yeah, fair play to you for doing it. But isn't it a shame, though, that that food isn't going to like shelters or homeless organisations that can use that, though, is it? Yeah, it's a it's a common question that I get. And uh, my answer is that I've actually worked with a number of shelters and kind of asked, 
I have this food. I can get it before it goes into the bin at the end of the day. Do you want it? And a lot of charities and organizations need consistency. So they're not able to take whatever there is at the end of the day. They have to have, you know, we need to know that we're getting 20 cans of tomatoes and we're getting six kilograms of pasta. So it's not really practical for them to have the smatterings that are left over. Um, And that's where apps like Olio come in. It's where a little bit of sharing and caring around the community come in. Um, But there is actually an organization that specifically tries to divert that food waste before it gets to the stage, and that's Food Cloud. Mm. So Food Cloud is the one that charities will go to, that soup kitchens will go to, and that's where they can get the consistent stuff, where they know that they're going to get X number of loaves of bread a day. They're going to get X number of kilograms of tomatoes. Um, But Olio and dumpster diving and freeganism is that last stop after everything else has been exhausted. Are there many freegans in Ireland? So it's it's a bit of a loose term. So a lot of people would dabble, you know? Right. A lot of people would dabble in freeganism. So we have lots of people who are involved in Olio, the Olio community, and that's a very clean, safe way to start kind of going, actually, food waste is such a massive problem. It's causing huge issues with climate change and global warming. When food goes into landfill, it creates methane gas, which is 30 times worse for the environment than CO2 even is. Um, so what can we do? We can start looking at ways to divert that that food waste. Um, and anyone who is doing a little bit of that, congratulations, you're a part-time freegan. So even if that's sharing with your neighbors, even if that's going, oh, I'm going away for the weekend, I'll take the leftover milk to my mum's place and she can use it so it won't go off in my fridge. Congratulations, you're doing some freeganism. It's not a thing that's all in or all out. Anyone who's trying to share things around for free that they aren't going to use, that someone else might use, that's freeganism. But when it comes to the dumpster diving, is it competitive? (laughs) No, not at all. Um, No, there's an X factor. There's definitely an X factor there. Um, There's I sometimes talk about it like fishing. There'll be certain spots that everyone knows about. um, And there's certain spots that you kind of keep to yourself. But for me personally, I'm not doing this because I want to get all of the food for free all of the time. I'm doing this to raise awareness about the fact that there is so much waste and that that waste should not be waste. It should be diverted in any way it can be. So um, I'm not competitive around my spaces. I'll tell anyone. (laughs) And will you be able to source your Christmas dinner and your your Christmas treats from dumpsters? So I've got a stash of chocolate already. I've got my cabbage, as I said. I've got potatoes, carrots, onions, all sorts of other bits and bobs, Um, bread. There's always an abundance of bread because at the end of the day, supermarkets clear their entire bakery section straight into... Um, either onto Olio or into dumpsters, which is very unfortunate because they like to be able to say all of the bread is baked daily. Um, So that means that literally anything not sold by the end of the day is going into not people waste. Um, So I've got a pretty huge chunk of that. I have purchased um, the main roast. I've got a lovely roast from Thanks Plants because I, when I, when I'm not dumpster diving, I eat plant-based food, which is also another great way to reduce your carbon footprint. Mm. I presume um, that makes it a bit easier then as well if you're not looking for meat every day, does it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll still eat 
um, meet if it comes to me. So, yeah. for example, um, I, I did a collection for Oleo on Tuesday, and one of the things I got was a load of sandwiches that had ham and cheese in them. Um, now, I, I don't want that ham to go to waste. I tried to share it as far as I could, but at a certain point, you know that you just have to stick it in the freezer and eat it yourself because no one else is going to grab it. Yeah. Um, so pop it in the freezer. That puts pause on your, uh, on your expiry date. You've got a few more days to get through them. Um, but yeah, because I'm not actively looking for meat in my diet, um, I guess that is one area that is a bit easier. But uh, I do look for things like beans and tofu and things like that. So those are things that I actively have to hunt for sometimes. Well, Caitlin, it's been an absolute eye-opener talking to you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You're so welcome. All the best and happy Christmas to you, my dear. Happy Christmas. <laughs> All the best, Caitlin. Thanks very much and happy diving. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. That's uh, Caitlin White there, who's uh, a freegan and a dumpster diver. I'd love to know your views on it and if that's something you'd engage in. Mary joins me on the line now. Mary, good morning. Good morning, Alison. Well, mm-hmm. Mary, will I meet you the back of Tesco later and we'll go for an old dive? I think for once I'm stuck for words. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? Um, you wouldn't be doing it for Christmas, no? I wouldn't be doing it at any point. <laughs> you see, um, you see, the unfortunate thing about this is that there are people out there who have to do this. Yeah, that's true. They literally have to do it, which is a totally different thing to what she's doing. And I would question when she says, it's not a crime because I think it's theft anyway. Or would it be trespass? That's what I was wondering. Would it be trespass? I would say both. Yeah. Because in general, where those bins would be pushed, she's talking about the back of the supermarkets. Mm. There isn't access there for the public. We all know that. Um, no, it wouldn't be my <laughs> cup of tea, pardon the pun. But isn't um, it though, it did, wouldn't it scare you the amount of, of really good food that she's able to get that's just thrown away? It would. Um, the other thing there is that I, I do, I don't know what area of the country she's in, but I do know that um, there's supermarkets here in town, for instance, and I do know the charities get the food from them mm. at the end of the day. And I don't Honestly, I know what she was kind of saying about charities needing to have consistency and all that. I'm not 100% sure on that one either. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the time, you know, these these charities tend to have freezers as well. So if she can put something in the freezer, so can they. That's a good point, yeah. Do you know? It's a shame we're not using all of that food that's being thrown out for people who do really need it. You see, that's the whole point here but again as I said most of the supermarkets will actually give that food to charity it used to be illegal to do that you know they had to dump it Mm. and I think that changed within the last maybe two or three years only it's so wasteful isn't it it is but it certainly wouldn't be for me I mean it doesn't matter that it's only after coming off the shelf or whatever. I, I, I just couldn't see myself doing it. I'm sorry. Um, now, I will admit that when, when, when Emma spoke to me about this first, I, like you, had a bit of a vision of uh, maybe wheelie bins. Yeah. Imagine. You know, and I was just thinking, you know, it's right up there with living off roadkill as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, a little bit. You, see, you yeah. know. You just feel yourself, um, you're wiping stuff off it when you're taking it off. You think, oh, Exactly. God. And I'm 
still not sure that anything that goes into a bin is for me. It's yeah. Actually, I am sure it's not. And listeners making a very good point as well. Uh, they say if everyone was to do this, supermarkets would be out of business and jobs would be gone, which is a fair point Ex- too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you can put any spin you like on it. And I'm not, I'm not being nasty here now. You can put any spin you like on it. But basically, you're just looking for something for nothing. Yeah. That's the thing. That's Mary, great to talk to you this morning and happy Christmas to you too, my dear. And Alison, happy Christmas to you, Emma, Fran and all the lads. Thanks a million, Mary. Have a good Thanks one. Thanks a million. Talk to Thanks, you Alison. Bye-bye. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie if it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Welcome back to Tip Today this morning. Just to bring you some reaction, Mary texts us. Uh, it's in relation to the cabinet reshuffle. She says, the two clowns running our third-class country are so divorced from their own people that they can't see that Irish people have to sleep in doorways on concrete. Yet any Tom, Dick or Harry are allowed to enter this country and be put up in the best of accommodation. Monkeys could run this country better. I'm not a racist but I could become one. But I will stand up for the Irish homeless men and women. That's from Mary. Also in relation to dumpster diving and freeganism, um, a listener says that's just greed. We all have to pay for our food. And I totally agree with Mary. Keep those texts coming into us 83 311 or 1800 now, we came across an interesting social experiment and it involved um, where 10 boys and 10 girls were left unsupervised in a house for a week. Now, it was part of a controversial social experiment and the results were, were frankly chaotic. Now, these they were children and they were aged between, I think, 6 and 12 or 6 and 13. And they were sent to live in a beautiful house in Hertfordshire for five days. No parents, no adults, aside from those who are behind the camera and none of them had met each other beforehand. The house and the garden were stocked with toys, paints, books and games. The kitchen was packed with food. They were also brought on a course on how to cook for the week before that they went in. And it was very interesting to see the variation in how the different group reacted. The girls were in there together for one week, then the boys were in there together for another week. Now, Dr Mary O'Kane is a lecturer in psychology, early childhood studies and education, and she joins me now for more. Mary, good morning. Morning, Alison. It's an interesting one, this little experiment, isn't it? Isn't it? What could possibly go wrong? That's Mm. the thing. And (laughs) you know what? It really didn't end the way I thought it would. And just for anyone who maybe isn't aware of it, what happened with the boys was that it it all disintegrated and it was, to talk of dumpsters again, it was a dumpster fire. It all went mental. They went crazy. They destroyed the house, ripped it apart. They fought with each other. They formed gangs in the house. Um... I think a couple of them left. They completely destroyed the house. Compared to the girls then, the girls, assu- or they assigned a leader, they assigned a cook, 
They each took turns cleaning. They had house meetings every day. They had a fashion show every day. They had art every day. It was this lovely, organised, peaceful house. And when there was a row, there was a meeting where they'd all come together and hash it out and they'd all be friends afterwards. Is, is that what we expect from, from girls and boys together? Well, Alison, it's so interesting, isn't it? Can I just say something in defence of the boys? Okay? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, before of course. we start. So the first thing is, the boys went in, and actually just to say, the youngest was 11. So they were about 11 to about 13. So they were a little bit older okay. than the six-year-old. But anyway, so in they go. Now, they were told there are no rules here. And all this stuff was left for them, like tins of paint, whatever they could do what they wanted with anything. But it also became really clear to them that there were no consequences for anything they did. And that's kind of a dangerous sort of um, start to make for them. But within the boys' group, there were a few quite dominant boys. And we often talk about social influence um, with adults and teenagers, like peer pressure, if you like. Yeah. And it can be really difficult at this age for boys or girls, but particularly within this certain group dynamic, to stand up to peer pressure. So the boys very quickly broke into two groups, a sort of a more quiet group and a much, much wilder group. As soon as they came in the door, that wilder group started to throw things around and painting all over the walls and doing all this. So it kind of set a power dynamic hmm. in that group. And um, obviously, this is not a sort of a valid piece of research. I mean, it's very much based on these individual kids. But I have to say, for the boys, there was so much disruption. But, you know, very often I think boys, if they were on their own, you could nearly see on some of these boys' faces they were not happy with what was happening. Yeah. But they just didn't feel that they could stand up and, and do anything against it. And in all fairness, I think at that age, it's hard for them. And I wondered, was it a case of, when I was watching it, is it because the boys are a bit more mollycoddled, a little, a little bit more? And I, and I think we're the all mothers of boys are a bit guilty of that. Maybe they kind of look after the boys a little bit more. So the boys struggled a little bit with not being looked after, whereas the girls were a bit more independent. The girls were certainly more independent, weren't they? I mean, in terms of their cooking, and they'd given boys cooking lessons before they went in, but they lived on cereal and, you know, fizzy drinks or whatever. They didn't do an awful lot of cooking. Where the girls certainly appeared to be more independent. They definitely did. Do you know what I think, think is interesting, though, Alison? Mm. It makes us think about us, as you say, how we treat our children of different genders. That's funny, the research tells us we really do treat boys and girls differently. There's some research looking at babies, Alison, and they brought parents into rooms where they were left with young babies, okay? N- not their own children, yeah. you know, other people's children. So they, you were brought into a room with children. What they did was they dressed the little boys in pink and they dressed the little girls in blue. So the parents who came in made assumptions based on the colour the child was dressed in. And then they observed how the parents interacted with babies. So these were parents, they were used to young children. Like it wasn't people who were like, oh, what do I do with a baby? They should have been used to babies. But what they found was they interacted quite differently. And they were saying things like, oh, good girl. Well, they were the boys because they were dressing in in, in, um, blue. But the children they thought were girls... But then 
they it, it, we realised that they just interacted completely differently. When they asked them about the children afterwards, when they were asked, say, tell me what you felt these, this baby was like, whatever, the boys, like dressed in blue, were more often described as, oh, no, they were quite angry or, oh, he was a bit temperamental or whatever. The girls... The parents, oh, you know, she was a lovely little thing, and oh, she was smiling back at me. So they made assumptions based on what they believed was the gender. So we, we, the research does tell us we kind of interact differently. And funny enough, there's another thing in this research: the boys weren't empathetic. You know, they really weren't. You know, the way they broke into their gangs, yeah. and there was some relational aggression going on, and nearly bullying. Of you know, certain certain boys were seen as more bullies and certain as victims. But again, in psychology, we know we speak differently to our boys and girls as they grow up. We talk about something called mental state talk, and that basically is the sort of talk we're talking about our feelings and you know needs, and it's all that sort of conversation. And the research tells us we do this with girls all the time, and I don't know. If it sort of goes back to these traditional ideas of like masculinity and femininity, but we don't have those conversations to the same degree with our boys. Okay. So you'd wonder if these boys just weren't, did they haven't experienced empathy in the same way or these conversations? Because there was a different, definite difference in their behaviour. Would there be a difference as well in maturity levels? Because girls tend to mature a bit earlier as well. So maybe they were just more able for that kind of experiment more than the boys would have been. Yeah, definitely they do. And I think we saw that in the both groups were giving the cooking lessons before they went in. But um, even though a few of the girls were not engaging in the cooking, yeah. some of them really were. Like they were, okay, we'll do the cooking and we, I'm going to make cakes. One was making buns and they were making dinner and, and the fashion show, as you say. Like they definitely were more mature in their behaviour. Do you know what also I thought, Alison? Ethical issues here. I mean, would you honestly let your 11 or 12 year olds do that? And the impact on them. Yeah. I thought of the parents who maybe a little bit naively let their children go forward for these, and they were TV shows, you know, they, this was going to be shown on Channel 4. Um, but really, it, with research, we're having research with children, and they were children. You know, the, they were showing respect for them in one way because they had a child psychiatrist, they had a nurse on site. They could ring a bell yeah. if they wanted to leave. But, oh, my gosh, I don't think they really thought about their welfare. Yeah, and maybe to and take a impact. child out of a home and put them in that kind of scenario, it must have been a huge shock for them. Yeah, exactly. And funny, can you imagine, if you were one of those children or their parents, you know, as I said, peer pressure is huge. Power dynamics are huge. So you might have had children caught up in that situation who went along with behaviour that was then shown on television and afterwards had to face the consequences of other people judging them really harshly yeah. for the way they behaved. But they didn't they weren't in their normal environment and you know it, because there were some really dominant characters, particularly in the boys, and mm. um, I think it was kind of hard for the other kids to stand up. But yet, those children had to live with um, 
the consequences of that being shown on, on television for the world to see and them being judged on their behaviour. But in all honesty, they were only between 11 and 13. You know, it's a vulnerable age. You know, that adolescence is hard on anyone yeah. without having your biggest weakness of being shown on TV for the world, you yeah. know. No, it's interesting. Dr. Mary O'Kane, we'll have to leave it there for this morning, but great to talk to you as always. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Dr. Mary O'Kane there, lecturer in psychology, early childhood studies and education. If you haven't seen that documentary, uh, it's certainly worth checking out. It's on Channel 4. I think it will be on their website as well. Um, but it's an amazing social experiment of how boys and girls behave when put in that kind of scenario. Now, just before we go to the outbreak, I'm going to play you today's TV theme. Here it is. ringing any bells that's my favourite TV theme tune I think of all time if you know what show that's from let us know you can text or whatsapp us 083 just for the crux of it there you go isn't that lovely so if you know the answer, text or WhatsApp 83 311 or 1800 If you're stumped on it, uh, bear with us because we will give you some clues throughout the hour. We'll be announcing the daily qualifier just before the end of the show today. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to this morning's tip today and well done to you all on the ball this morning. Most of you getting uh, the TV theme tune right. Uh, for those who haven't or you missed it, we'll be giving you another chance this hour and in the next hour as well to listen to it. So that's to be in with a chance to enter our competition for a chance of winning €500 Euro cash this week. That's thanks to Hall Alarms who are celebrating 40 years in business. Uh, they began in 1982 so all of our TV theme tunes this week will be shows that began in 1982 and as I said we'll be giving you another chance to win later on this hour. Now picture the scene. You're at the bar over the Christmas period. The barman comes over. You order a Diet Coke. Uh, your colleague uh, looks at you and uh, turns to you and says, oh no, here we go. And the question is coming. They'll cock their head, look you up and down and say, why aren't you drinking? You sigh. You didn't think people asked this anymore. But while the Christmas drinking culture is still alive and kicking, choosing sobriety is becoming more normalised. And yet some people still haven't got the memo. They'll look at you like you've three heads when you tell them you aren't drinking over the festive period. So if you're newly sober or this is the first Christmas where you're opting for abstinence, fielding that question from your boozy auntie or childhood friends may feel a bit scary. So how do you respond to the question, why aren't you drinking? Michael Gearin is an addiction counsellor and he joins me on the line now. Michael, good morning. 
Good morning, Ellie. Good to talk to you this morning, Michael. It's always a question you get asked if you're not drinking. Um, and I think for women, it's always, oh, have you news? Is that why you're not drinking? Or you, you feel like you have to have an answer to it. Like I'm on antibiotics or I'm driving or I'm going somewhere. But is it becoming a bit more acceptable not to be drinking now on social events? Well, first of all, Christmas time is is a time of the year where people who are otherwise responsible drinkers maybe drink a little bit more than they did during the course of the rest of the, the year. Mm. And um, it seems when people go out to social occasions, Christmas parties and so on and so forth, there is an expectation that they would be drinking. And it can be particularly difficult for people that might have stopped drinking during the year. Um, because obviously they don't want to get into a big discussion about the fact that alcohol may have been or was becoming a problem in their life. Yet they feel that because of the questioning they endure on some occasions, that they have to come up with some justification as to why they're not drinking at the social occasion. We generally advise people if they find themselves in that situation to simply say to whoever is asking, I'm just not drinking and leaving it at that rather than having to get into any discourse about reasons behind one has decided um, not to drink. Do you feel like then people who are having to answer that question um, from your discussions with them, do they feel like they're being judged for not drinking? Well, yes. And and it's it's I have come across cases recently where people have said to me who have stopped drinking. And, and by the way, they're not necessarily individuals with alcohol problems that as you pointed out there in your introduction, in the case of a lady, they might be asked if they're pregnant or are they on medication or some sort of a reason like that. Um, yeah. So sometimes people are not content to accept the person's decision made by themselves for themselves that they have decided not to drink. And that lack of acceptance of that decision is probably amplified at Christmas time because people let themselves go a little bit more than they would during the year. How difficult is this time of year then for people who maybe are, are for the first time dealing with sobriety or maybe accepting that there is a drinking problem that they need to get under control? Well, if we were dealing with clients, for example, that had become sober during the course of 2022, we would be advising them to avoid these kind of situations and, and occasions altogether for the first Christmas. Um because they could be potentially, at worst, they could be a potentially triggering event for relapse. And at best, they're probably going to be very annoying and boring and uninspiring by virtue of the fact that the person will probably have to justify their newfound sobriety to someone. Maybe not justify it, but may have to encounter these um, questions. And generally speaking, people are better off for the first year or two after they stop drinking if they have an alcohol problem to avoid situations and places where people might be using alcohol excessively. And people who are in recovery for their first Christmas very often get anxious and they agonise about the risks, the enhanced risks that they will face of a relapse over the Christmas season because there is a better use of alcohol and there is a possibility they will be in closer proximity to it. I imagine family occasions then are, are something that prove very difficult because it, it, sometimes they're not something that you can avoid. And for many families, some people may need maybe a bit of Dutch courage just to feel comfortable if there, there's any kind of contentious family issues they're dealing with. 
Yes, and behind, at the back of a lot of alcohol, problematic alcohol issues that we would encounter um, would be things like anxiety and shyness and poor self-esteem and so on. And that uh, speaks very much to the Dutch courage theory that that you speak about there because in a case of a problem drinker, the drinking is merely the manifestation of an underlying psychological slash emotional factor that caused them to abuse alcohol in the first place. So a lot of people are in a very uncomfortable place when they stop drinking early on because they are still coming to terms with these underlying psychological and emotional drivers that caused the problem drinking in the first instance. Um, In terms of families, the majority of families would be very aware and and very um, sympathetic towards somebody in that situation. And very often families will contact us and ask us, how should we handle Christmas, given the fact that we have the family member in recovery? And generally what we say to them is... um, try and avoid putting the person in a situation where they will be in the company of somebody who is using alcohol to excess. Um, and that seems to work. We have families who have had no alcohol at all in the house at Christmas time um, okay. on rare occasions because what they had endured because of the person's problem drinking was, was, was so painful to them. They felt the best course of action in order to protect our sobriety of no drink at all. And what if you're in the position where you're you're a member of a family and you're concerned about a family member's drinking and they're not at the stage where they acknowledge that there's a problem? What can you do to maybe try and pull them back a little bit so it doesn't get out of hand? Well, I suppose we get asked that question at all times of year and it's particularly relevant at Christmas. And what I would suggest to somebody who is in a family with a problem drinker or a potential problem drinker, is to quietly and calmly sit them down and explain to them the negative effects that their drinking is having on your life and their life and encourage them to get support for that problem drinking and offer your own support and company towards that person getting that help. So in other words, you know, sit down with the person, we've noted your drinking, it's upsetting me, I've no doubt it's hurting and upsetting you, and maybe you should talk to somebody about it and I'm completely supportive of that. It is a waste of time talking to somebody when they're under the influence. And that's very often the mistake we see families making in that, is that they will confront the person when they're intoxicated. And it's by and large a waste of time. You're better off to wait until the person is sober have any conversations about their drinking. Okay. Michael, if you're in a social situation and you choose not to drink or, or you're someone who, who is dealing with sobriety maybe for the first time, is it ever a good idea to pretend like you're drinking? So we'll say if you have maybe a seven up and you, you tell people it's a gin and tonic just to get them off your back, is that ever a good idea? Not really. Um, I think probably the best thing to do is that if somebody is having a soft drink, um, in the company of individuals um, who are drinking alcoholic beverages, the handiest thing to do is somebody asks you the question to say, I'm just, I, I'm just not drinking tonight, or yeah. pass it off and such. And there is absolutely no need to be getting into a conversation as to the reasons why one isn't drinking on this particular um, occasion are necessarily making up excuses for their behaviour. Because I suppose the more we do that as individuals, um, we are feeding into this culture 
where there is an expectation that one ought to be drinking on these occasions and if one is not doing so well, then they are the odd men or women out, as the case might be. And what would you say to people who would say, you know, I, I'm, I don't have a drinking problem, um, I'm not an alcoholic, but I do need a couple of drinks for that Dutch courage to go out. Is that OK if they, if they feel like they don't have a problem? Well, I suppose, look, if somebody says that they don't have a problem at all with drinking and they have absolutely no consequences or unmanageability arising from their drinking, and they find that drink helps them in social situations, that is okay. But I would say that is the exception rather than the rule, because generally speaking, anyone who drinks for reasons other than those that are truly social, sooner or later will end up with a problem with it if they're using it almost as a medication to overcome shortcomings that they have in their character. Somebody in that situation um, who is engaging in that would be, if they encountered an adverse event in their life, would be ripe for their drinking to escalate to problematic proportions. Okay, so you're setting up there maybe a worrying scenario where if you use it as a crutch for a social situation, you could use it as a crutch in other circumstances. Exactly. And, And again, to reiterate, if anybody is drinking for any reason other than enjoyment, are other than why they're involved in a social occasion. It's the underlying reasons why one drinks are a very good signpost in terms of what way that drinking pattern will evolve. So I would, I would caution against using, and I know in Ireland, historically, there was, there was the, the kind of an attitude that men in particular used um, drink as a Dutch courage medicine yeah. to allow them to ask ladies out and ask them out to dance and that kind of thing. But it's generally speaking not a good idea um, to use it to overcome personal issues, particularly around shyness or inability to mix or that kind of thing. Okay, Michael, can I ask you as well, you know, because it's Christmas, we tend to overdo it. And it's not just with alcohol, it's with food and with everything else. But would you have concerns about the fact that as a society, not everybody, but we tend to overdo the alcoholic Christmas? Would you have concerns about that? I suppose I have more concerns, Ellie, about the fact that there's a cohort of the population who overdo alcohol all the time, yeah. but don't necessarily fall into the, 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 strictly speaking, the category of being alcoholic. Um, and there is an awful lot of harmful drinking goes on throughout the year, and admittedly to a greater extent around the Christmas period, where people are drinking to harmful levels, even though, strictly speaking, they may not be addicted to alcohol. Yeah, and And it's probably more accepted. It's probably more accepted. And when you look at our per capita consumption in Ireland, it's something like 10 or 11 litres of pure alcohol per capita per annum, which equates to something like 40 litres of of 40 bottles of vodka per person per year or something like that. We're, We're very high up in the European League table. And I believe myself that that consumption of alcohol it's very much concentrated amongst the younger generations in the harmful sense. So I suppose we do overdo it at Christmas. For those that overdo it at Christmas and don't do it at any other time of year, it's not strictly speaking harmful. But for somebody who is continuing on this harmful drinking pattern at Christmas, simply at a higher level than they were doing all year, it certainly would be concerning us because we have huge problems with alcohol in this country 
pre-COVID, 1,500 acute hospital beds per night were occupied by people with alcohol-related illnesses. And it was costing us 1.8 billion euro per annum, treating these individuals with alcohol-related illnesses. So our relationship with alcohol, Ellie, in a macroeconomic sense, isn't a good one. Can I ask you, Michael, what kind of demographic are you starting to look at when it comes to alcohol problems? I know there were concerns a few years ago that it was, you know, the the, the working woman in her 30s, maybe, who was sitting down with a bottle of wine every night. That was one of the more concerning cohorts. Has that changed? Is there a certain demographic you would have concerns for? Well, I suppose the biggest thing that we are seeing, Ali, in terms of general addiction, and we would um, incorporate alcohol addiction into this statement, is that we are continually surprised and amazed at how young people who are seeking services for addiction issues are becoming year on year. Um, And even though there is good evidence to suggest that the age at which people take their first drink is getting higher, which is wonderful news, um, and the consumption of drink amongst young people has fallen, which is also good news. There are nonetheless cohort of individuals within the younger generations who drink harmfully and end up in, in, in rehab centres and various other addiction services with catastrophic damage done to their lives at a very young age. So we're very concerned with that. The other thing that we are at the moment and, and looking at with some degree of interest is to what effect, if any, the pandemic and prevailing conditions over the past three years have had on drinking patterns in Ireland. And I think there's a story um, yet to be told in terms of that. Are you seeing patterns so far? Well, we have come across people, undoubtedly, who have told us that they drank reasonably responsibly up to the pandemic and that during the course of the pandemic, particularly during 2020 and the initial very frightening days of the of the COVID-19 lockdowns, that they found their drinking changed from being a social pursuit to a home pursuit and escalated significantly. So there are a cohort of people out there whose alcohol consumption patterns were very negatively impacted by COVID. We don't know how many. We're hoping it'll be quite small, but it could prove to be significant as time passes by. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, Michael. The phone line isn't amazing, but anyone who's looking to contact you, how can they do that? If people look up www.coonvilla.ie you will see the locations and contact numbers of all our services and we will be open right through Christmas as we always have been because we understand it is a very difficult and challenging time for the people for whom we provide care. Okay, Michael, great to talk to you and have a great Christmas. Thanks very much, Ali, and many happy returns. All the best. That's Michael Gear in there, addiction counsellor, and Emma will have those details as well if anyone is looking for them. But it's www.coonvira.ie. That's C-U-A-N-M-H-U-I-R-E. Just to bring you some text, the listener says, I'm in my 50s. I've never drank in my life. I still get the smart-ass comments like, you're no good, no crack. Uh, you must still have your communion money. Why can't people get it? I choose not to drink. And believe me, I don't have my communion money. Uh, another listener says, Tom in Dundrum says, I wouldn't dream of abusing alcohol. I like it too much. That's from Tom. Thanks for that, Tom. You can uh, keep your text coming into us. Text or WhatsApp 083 311 or call us 1800 938 007. We're back after this. 
Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry in association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage Puck On, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to Tip Today. It's time for a GP slot. Our Nina-based GP, Dr. Pat Harrell, joins me on the line now. Pat, good morning. Good morning and happy Christmas, Eddie. Happy Christmas. Is it a mad week for you, Christmas week? Oh, it's mental. Is it's it? absolutely mental. And um, now, you know, I'm afraid there's two or three things now, seeing as you asked me. One is if you're coming into us, um, we're healthcare workers, so I'm afraid you have to wear masks. Um, and um, it's it's just, that's just the rules, you know. Mm. So um, if you remember to pop to find a mask somewhere before you come in to see us. The other thing is don't be worrying too much about tablets. About Depending on which kind of virus you have, should you um, just try and rule out COVID before you contact a doctor? Oh, absolutely. It would be really handy if you did an antigen test, you know, before, um, you, you know, it just, just people ring up. I mean, if you get, you see, most of us have had it, or yeah. if we haven't had it, we're vaccinated. And um, it, it's not quite as vicious as it was. So if you have a bit of a sniff or a cold, it could well be COVID. So if you just do the antigen and unfortunately stay in. Now, this is the kind of the triple whammy which is hitting the health service at the moment because apart from the RSV and the cold and the flu, um, there's not such a worker sick and they can't come in because they're positive or whatever. And um, it, as a rule, really, you don't don't go to work if you're sick, mm. you know. Um, so nobody wants you to work if you're sneezing and coughing. Yeah. The place, you know. And this RSV and is really running right, isn't it? I have it. A, there's two in my house now who have it. I've one that has it with four weeks now, and he's on a second antibiotic. I can shift it. Why but your is it so virulent? Antibiotics won't make any difference. Really? Because ah. it's a virus. Okay. It's a virus, Ali. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for antibiotics. It's like putting petrol in a diesel car. Oh you no! You know you've got the wrong the wrong thing. Or it's like putting petrol in an electric car. That's it, that's how mad it is. You know it doesn't have any effect on whatsoever. It's very virulent, isn't it? Well, the little ones can get sick because they have tiny little um, airways. So they, they can get quite sick. Now, you can get um, a vaccine for the flu for the kids. Um, it's just up the nose. It's very simple. You won't get flu out of it. The anti-flu will not give you the flu. And especially if they have grandchildren, grandparents or anyone like that, they're likely to be visiting or anyone sick, you know. So it's a good mm. thing to give the kid a squirt up the nose and you can still get the cold vaccines with your doctors and chemists but that is good protection the other thing is like when you're when you're out be careful you know i was i was in um, a couple of cities like big cities like galway and limerick and, you know things like escalators and door handles and stuff like that and if you touch those and you touch your nose you know you're going to be spreading viruses 
So it's a big thing. I, I think it'd be great, you know, people got to have a tour taken off their shoes when they go into the house. Because oh. you think about all the dirt and the spit and God knows what. I don't know, I was watching the World Cup, I really enjoyed it, but all spit like maniacs. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you don't want to be walking Just back. make sure you the Japanese all and and, and the, the Scandinavians all have lovely big socks and they take off the shoes at the door and they, they wash their hands when they go in. Yes. Now, there's going to be a bit of a break in the daddy because the, the schools are going to be closed and that kind of tends to break down the infection a wee bit. Yeah, the concern I think for parents then is bringing them around, like you said, older members of the family. So, you know, if that cough is still lingering, are they still okay to be around family members? It's kind of the runny nose, you know, okay. the streaming nose. And yeah. and it's a big thing, you know, uh, people were saying with the flu, with the cold snap, did it kill a load of viruses? And the bad news is it didn't. It actually made them hardier. Viruses love really? the cold. They love a cold snap. And they actually put on a kind of a rubbery, kind of an overcoat, which means makes them even stronger in the cold. What they don't like is um, hot, wet weather. So um, this cold snap will have supercharged the viruses. And the other thing is, if you're walking around in the cold and your nose is cold, um, you, it's, it's like you've left your front door open and and robbers can get in. Because if you, you know, you see the kids, there's no coat on. They're yeah. corners and they're shivering and their noses are a bright red. That's just the, the virus just loves that. And then somebody lets out a big tattoo beside them and in it goes. There's no protection whatsoever. So if you dress up and take vitamin D, loads of vitamin D, and apart from everything else, I, I, I used to work a lot of Christmas days and every Christmas there'd be a couple of domestics, you know, which would be um, turkeys thrown in the door and people more and shouting at each other and brothers threatening to kill each other. <laughs> and um, that was sort of basically a lot of drink involved. Mm. So especially if you're banged up with your family and if there's any issues at all, go easy and the drink. Very easy. Our things will be said that won't be unsaid or will be remembered forever, especially if they're small kids. I mean, you can go home then and drink all you want, you know, but um, in other people's houses and things like that. And it's great with kids. Um, a very wise woman said to me years ago, I never forgot it. She said, boys particularly are like hounds. They have to be run every day. They have to be uh, run. <laughs> yeah. And if you have them inside with loads of electronic stuff and loads of sweets, and no sunshine and no daylight and nothing. Um, they're going to go mint. You yeah. know, they're going to go wild. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to get them out into the a daylight day. That was a great day to take a child and run it, you know, and um, start to get that vitamin D into your face and get out and about. And, um, you know, and be thankful. Be thankful. Yeah. You know, where there's Jesus when you see the poor pressers in Ukraine and, you know, and, and there's so many people dispossessed in Syria and everywhere. You know, I mean, I know it's hard on people at the moment. And, you know, it, but I think in the last couple of years, we've learned to tailor our... You know, we've, we've cut down a lot. I don't think people have the same value and laws of stuff they used to have. I don't think you so, know? yeah. And I don't think we, we fill the house with stuff the way that we did before. I think COVID has given us that. I mean, the, the, the joy in the basic things. Yeah, do you know, there's good, actually, evidence, scientific evidence that Christmas is good for you. And uh, my friend Lucia Gannon, who's a GP down in Killinor, did research on this. And it starts with doing up the house, which is creative and artistic and extremely good for you, especially if you involve the children and members of the family. And you're deciding, you know, that looks good here and that looks good. That's really good. And especially anything to do with putting up lights oh. and deciding, you know, where the lights are going to go and all that kind of thing. And the earlier you start, the better. 
So if you know, it, 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 it's, it's a good thing to start and it's a good run into it. And then when you think about it, um, you know, this is the only time of the year when old and run so all the time listen to classical music and jazz music and classics, you know, we're, and, and all that communal singing and going to choirs and concerts and things like that. It, it's really good for you. Yeah. And I actually think at another level, something like watching the World Cup or something, you know, with your friends and in a pub and things like that. Is, I mean, God knows there's always the risk of viruses and things. But quite apart from that, the whole everybody sort of three hundred people together in a place all here and messy on. You know, that's that's really good for sort of social cohesion. Yeah, I suppose it you, creates that sense of community, which is Oh, but it good. gives you a huge kick of dopamine and all yeah. kinds of feel good factors that carry on for ages. Pat, can I ask you, the the front of the examiner today, um, we know, of course, the trolley crisis continues and continues to to get worse. But Waterford Hospital, by the looks of it, seems to have cracked it. Have you seen the article in the examiner this morning? I haven't, no. no. Basically, what they're saying, there hasn't been a person on a trolley at the University Hospital in Waterford since March of 2020. And they're putting that down to um, having a good person basically at the face who's able to direct everything. So they're directing resources and they're directing staff to where they are needed. And they're saying no to people they don't have room for. So they're only operating for what they can um, for what they can hold essentially. And they're using the, the, the end of year funding to put maybe the you know the, the older patients who maybe aren't ready to go home yet but really don't need to be in hospital they're using that funding to maybe divert them into nursing homes and essentially they've cracked it and now the HSE are looking at maybe implementing what they're doing in Waterford into other hospitals to try and alleviate the trolley crisis how would you feel about that do you obviously it's a positive story that that Waterford seems to be able to um, avoid any trolley crisis there is is that something that needs to be studied? I think you're absolutely singing from the hymn sheet. I think most doctors and nurses would have been saying for years. Um, I often thought that if you got six or seven good hotel managers and put them in charge of the hospital, we wouldn't have passed the mess we have, you know. Um, a lot of it is logistics, you know, and I'm not hospital-based and everything. But, you know, people sitting around waiting to be diagnosed and they've already been diagnosed by the GP. Um, that goes on, you know, um, and people who are sitting because they can't get out and step up, the step down thing. Now, I know they've got an initiative that wants to put a lot more money into solving the crisis. But what I like about this is there seems to be um, direction. You know, they seem like water for the run of piles. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you kind of do what works instead of what people have suggested, dreamed up, might work. So, that's, that's great news. I it would make you question then what isn't being managed in other hospitals? Like if Waterford say the issue that they've solved it just down purely by good management. So do, would that indicate that the, the other hospitals maybe there isn't good management in place? Oh, I think there is a bed shortage. There really is. And, and whatever way you put it, you know, there is, they need to put more into primary care, which means people will be the things we're talking about that they're not um, actually getting sick putting themselves in the way of being sick you know like the, the primary care which is GPs and people on the front line we put a lot of time into things like chronic care management making sure our diabetics are well managed our people with COPD are well managed you know and that they don't actually end up in crisis and you know the person who sort of gets sick every winter and ends up in hospital you, you don't want to get like that, they want to manage their inhalers and their flu vaccines, and if they get an infection, they'll be treated early. 
It's when the whole thing at primary care becomes overwhelmed and spills back into the hospital. Now, then there's the people who've fallen and the ice is broken, their hip and things like that. I mean, we can't do much for that, but they need to go straight in. But they don't need to be sitting for 20 hours, you know, yeah. when you know the hip is broken. So that's when the management comes in and they need to be fast tracked and triage. Triage is the word for the instructions. Identify, you know, what you do. Because the thing is, if you're, if you're sitting in casualty, you can become a hell of a lot thicker than, um, than just from sitting around. You know, and yeah. you catch something from the person in the next bed or trousers or whatever. You know, so there are hazardous places to be. But look, I welcome good management and I welcome the initiative. And it's great that they're learning from the people who are doing it well. Mm. So, um, you know, that's, that's all very positive things. I know one of the, the other issues that people are having as well, particularly this winter, is trying to get into a GP. Has that eased at all, the wait time for a GP? Well, we're lucky in Ireland that most places can still manage to see you in a day. But um, the, the whole country is very, very low in GPs. Now, they're training up more and training up new ones, but um, it's going to take a long while to get out of this, which is a crisis coming down the line. You know, Do you think it's going no to get worse? Oh, it's definitely going to get worse because most GPs, when you think about it, if you picture a GP, your own GP, the odds are that they're near a retirement age and qualified. Mm. So um, a load of those are going to be going soon. So, um, but to be positive about it, you know, lots of people have applied. They're, they're opening up the GP schemes to more people and, um, you know, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Well, at least, you know, they're kind of valued and they know what we do. But, you know, yes, be patient and... and you know, we're doing our best here. We're still we're still swinging, so we're still out there. <laughs> and that's where we leave it, Pat. Have a very happy Christmas, and happy thanks Christmas, so much Abby. for all and your I hope contributions. Your get better, and they will in time. Oh, there's listen, loads of, loads of vitamin D and sunshine, and they'll be grand. And I'll okay. run them. Thanks, Pat. Warm. Yeah, take care. <laughs> bye, bye. Thanks, Pat. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip today on one eight hundred nine three eight double o seven. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecone, your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, Call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on, on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to Tip Today. Most of you have the answer right for the TV theme tune for today. I'll be giving you another chance just before the end of the show and we'll announce our daily qualifier as well to begin with a chance of winning €500 Euro this week. That's an association with Hall Alarms who are celebrating 40 years in business. So I will be playing that, um, I'd say, within the next half hour again, just in case you missed it. Now, books, they're always a great present to get for Christmas and a great way to unwind as well over the Christmas break. But there are so many to choose from. So who better to help us pick through the best of what's on offer this Christmas than John Butler of The Bookworm in Thurless. I met with John at The Bookworm in recent days for his picks of the year. OK, 
Okay, John, it's that time of year again. We're here at the Bookworm and we're looking at some of the uh, books on offer this Christmas. Just generally, it, it's been a really great year for readers, hasn't it? We've been really spoiled with choice. It has, Ali. Uh, it has indeed, yeah. Um, I suppose COVID, the, the couple of years of COVID kind of put a bit of a, a halt on a lot of books or delayed a lot of books so that a lot of publishers had kind of delayed titles or, or um, cancelled them during that period and then so this year you've kind of back to full full um, a full range of books and you know it's been more normal so uh, like as you're saying this Christmas again a huge choice of great titles um, and you know as we always say books make an ideal gift for Christmas whether you know exactly what a person likes or not you know a book is a great option because it's hard to go wrong and if you ask in a, in a bookshop you know generally you'll get you know the booksellers will be able to help you and and pick out something that'll suit whether you know man or woman or child or you know young person um there's always something there to suit and even if you, you don't realize it there's, there's so much choice in um in books at this time of year particularly um you know it's, it's a great gift option Absolutely. Can I ask then, looking back over the year, what have been some of the, the really popular titles that stand out to you? Um, I suppose over the course of the year, um, you've had uh, Where the Crawdads Sing, that novel that has been a, a huge seller for the past couple of years, um, and it's still selling in vast numbers. Um, Claire Keegan's book, um, All the Small Things Set in New Ross, it, which is a follow-up to her book Foster which a lot of people and a lot of young people would know from doing it in school and again it's similar to Foster it's only a little over 100 pages long but it's the power in her in her writing is just phenomenal and she's uh, been nominated for several awards and of course the book Foster was turned into the movie on Colleen June which again has been um, you know award winning Um, so I think that has been the outstanding novel and of course our own uh, Donald uh, Ryan's book uh, that has been a great seller uh, this year and again uh, an absolutely fabulous novel uh, very much about women and the power of, uh, of uh, women in a, within a family and in their community and these women who don't apologise for the people they are you know really powerful novel um, those those novels uh, another novel by Louise Kennedy uh, Trespasses she's a Northern Irish writer and uh, has has won um, one of the uh, Irish Book Awards uh, of the year uh, that has been a super um, novel this year um, they'd be the, the main ones in fiction in, in non-fiction a lot of books about Ukraine obviously and, and the conflict there and Putin um, that, that area has been very big non-fiction generally has been very strong this year. One of the ones I'm going to mention an, Atlant- an Irish Atlantic rainforest by Owen Dalton is a, is a book about rewilding and, and in the context of climate change and the damage to ecology um, that has been a big seller this year. Mm. Um, so let's go through some of the books then that you've kind yeah. of uh, highlighted for us maybe for, for winter, pres- winter presents. We're looking at um, John Creedon. First. Yeah, John Creedon. Uh, John, as people would know from, from um, radio and he's, he's uh, been around a long time, I suppose, but he's only got into publishing books in the past couple of years. He had one, I think, two years ago, and this is his new one, An Irish Folklore Treasury which is taken from the Folklore Commission collection, which uh, gathered children's... Um, children back in the... School children in the 30s and 40s were asked to gather stories from their elderly relations or neighbours 
about their lives as they grow up. And so those stories were gathered in the Folklore Commission, the Irish Children's Folklore Commission. And so John Creedon has taken selections of those stories from around the country and put them in this beautiful book. And it's a book that you could give anybody. It's a gorgeous book. It is. Beautiful production. Hardback uh, with gold um, embossed uh, text on the cover. And you know, for, for an older person, they'd probably relate to a lot of the stories in it. And then for a younger person, probably open your eyes to what life was like back in, even back in the 1900s, because mm. it goes back that far. Um, absolutely lovely book and a, an ideal gift for anyone, even if you didn't know what they might be interested in. This is a book you could dip in and out of. Yeah. And something along a similar vein, I suppose, little, listen to the land speak, Mancon McGann, who wrote 32 Words for Field, a couple of years ago and had um, a, a book for children. He's very much into language and into uh, the landscape and history and myth and legend. And that's what he brings into this book. It's myth and legend in the Irish landscape covering, you know, ancient forests, ancient bogs, great rivers of Ireland, tr ancient trees. Um, and it's a, again, it's a beautiful book, beautiful black cover and, and with the, the gold embossed uh, text again. Um, and it's for anyone with an interest in history, in myth and legend, in the kind of the the ancient parts of our landscape. This is a really lovely book and it's a book you can dip in and out of, again, perfectly suitable for for man or woman, practically of any age. Mm. There's a little bit of a resurgence in, in folklore books, I Big think, Big time, too. yeah, there is. And, you know, it's it, I suppose it's very much part of our culture and our heritage, the myth and legend and, and in the Irish, in Irish history, um, even, you know, just uh, there's a, a new um, edition of Lady Gregory's Myth and Legend, which is a lovely edition. And that, again, has been selling very well. So, yeah, there, there is a huge yeah. interest in, in all that aspect. Then, as I mentioned, that, that other book, The Irish Atlantic Rainforest, Owen Dalton, which he published during the year, he bought an, a small holding in West Cork. He was from Dublin and lived in Italy for years, but just decided to... to uh, go for an alternative lifestyle a number of years ago, bought this small holding of a few acres down in West Cork and has decided to rewild it. So what had become overgrazed and completely barren landscape on a mountainside is now full of uh, native trees and shrubs and wildflowers wow. and even the animals are coming back, wild animals. It's, it's a lovely book for anyone with an interest in the climate and climate change and the damage that's been done to our ecosystems. This really is a, a lovely book. And there's pictures of, of the book. Exactly what he's site. done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's a, he's a lovely style of writing, very easy read. So yeah. that's, that's definitely one I'd recommend as well. Lovely. Nice Another one then quite topical. Um, he, he's gotten a lot of coverage over the last few weeks with that RT documentary. That's Sean Quinn and the, the book by Trevor Burney. Yeah, and, and uh, this book is one that was due for a couple of years, but uh, I think various legal, um, <laughs> uh, not disputes, but questions were over it. So it was, it was held back. But it's out now, yeah, and it, it ties in with the, raid, the TV um, documentary that was on there recently, and Trevor Burney was the producer of that programme. So he's the man with in-depth knowledge on Quinn, and I suppose most of us know his story, you know, from, from nothing. He became the, the wealthiest man in the country and then basically blew it all. A huge rise and a huge fall. Yeah, blew it all in a yeah. gamble. So, you know, I suppose it gives an insight into the man's thinking and because the author had access to his documents and to his to interviewing him himself um so it's uh, i suppose for anyone with an interest in in quinn and in, yeah. in how, how you know somebody who is kind of at the top of his industry and at the top of his uh 
you know, this uh, huge wealth that he had created and, and so many jobs and, and uh, so many businesses. But he blew it all basically to a financial gamble, you know. So and does Trevor Bernie give his own views on it? Um, not so much. He's 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 pretty much objective, and it's telling the story um, from interviewing Quinn and from access to all the the uh, his papers and that. And uh, so he's quite objective. Yeah. But he doesn't say you know one way or the other that Quinn was wrong or Quinn was right. I don't think. Just presents um, the facts. Presents the facts exactly, yeah, and. Absolutely all the, the, the um, I suppose, infamous things that we and know And you now. can't miss that one because it's Sean Quinn Wright taking up the whole cover, the cover of that. Yeah, so that's yeah, great. Our next one then, you can never go wrong, Alice Taylor. Alice Taylor, I suppose she's kind of a perennial uh, favourite and has been publishing books for years, since the 1980s really, and with her School Through the Fields was her first book. So this book is called The Nana. And again, it's a, an ideal gift, um, maybe for, for a parent or a grandparent. And it's about grandmothers and how important they are in all our lives growing up and in the countryside and the old traditions full of photographs and uh, lovely illustrations of country life you know it, it, her books are always popular yeah, and they're, they're a great last minute gift if you're, you're stuck for something as a stocking filler for somebody a lovely gift yeah, just called, called the, the, nana. The, the nana lovely yeah. Um, Our next one then, Paul Brady, a nice yeah, musical biography. Yeah, there's been there's a great selection of biographies this year uh, and Paul Brady, who has strong Tipperary connections, um, this is his story, you know, one of our probably greatest musicians and, you know, his name checked by people like um, Mark Knopfler, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, uh, Harry Belafonte. These are his fans, like, that's, I mean where do you go after that, you know? So that's how, how highly regarded he is. And it's a very honest account of his own story growing up and, and uh, in Derry and his influences, the early influences of traditional music and into moving into rock and roll. And uh, it's really just a very interesting book. Anyone interested with music, but anyone interested in a yeah. good biography because he's had a, such a, a, a career yeah. um, and a very well-written book. Biography sometimes can be a bit heavy. I think if, if you're not, you know, they they read very factually sometimes. They can be a bit dry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, he's had such a, an interesting career, and you know, to go from you know almost a, a completely traditional background into, you know, playing with and writing songs for Tina Turner or Bonnie yeah. Raitt or you know, and Bob Dylan is you know, I think he he there's a there's a chapter in where he talks about giving Bob Dylan a. A lesson on on singing the lakes of Pontchartrain, you know, which is just you know, it's wow. mind-boggling, really. Our next biography then is a sporting one and a huge success. Parik Mar's book, yeah, um, Parik's book, um, you know, uh, Parik, you know, mo most people in Tipperary be well aware that Parik published this book uh, just a couple of months ago, and it's been, I suppose, our top seller. Uh, by a long shot since since right. yeah uh, which is great and uh, I think probably most people know his story that he had to retire early from hurling because of a potential um, health issue and uh, you know it was I suppose a huge shock to, to, to hurling fans that somebody who was still at the peak of his powers mm. had to stop playing but because of health issues and, and the health advice he took it and, and he, he, he did the sensible thing. But it's a really interesting story and I, I think a lovely book for even young people, even girls or boys playing hurling from the age of about 10 would, would enjoy this. Uh, it's an easy read, but he's very honest and, and very, you know, goes a lot into his younger hurling days with Dorlis Og and, and playing with Skull Alva and, and up through the, the ranks. 
And I, I think the, the interesting thing is that, you know, for a guy who was the top of his game, what he, what he says in the book is he, he, he didn't always have full confidence in his own ability, you know, that he had to work on his game and, he, you know, he always doubted himself. But, Isn't that incredible? You know, he, he proved how, how good he, he became, you know, he, he, with hard work and that he became probably one of our greatest ever yeah. hurlers. So that's yeah. great to see it doing so well. It is, yeah. yeah, yeah. All on the line is the name of it. Now our next book, then Sweet Harmon, or sorry, Sweet Therapy. Sweet Therapy, yeah. Just book. going into uh, cookbooks are always a, a a big hit at Christmas, and uh, Una Leonard developed her own career from uh, social media, from my, my Instagram, I presume. And uh, Sweet Therapy is her book on baking, the joy of baking. And it's a beautiful book. Again, an ideal gift for anyone with an interest in baking, particularly, I suppose, a young person, because she appeals to, she's only in her 20s. But it's a lovely book yeah. uh, full of easy recipes for, uh, you know, tray bakes and, and brownies and all kinds of things. That, that All the bad stuff. All the lovely stuff. <laughs> and ideal stuff for Christmas. Uh, so that's an ideal choice. And a, another very popular um, book this year is a new book on, on racing. It's on point-to-point racing, which, of course, is huge in the country and uh, huge, very popular in Tipperary. This is by the Healy Racing um, uh, photography uh, uh, firm that, that have produced lo- lovely books on, on racing before. So this is their book on point-to-point racing, full of lovely photographs of action, photographs of uh, point-to-points from all over the country, lots of characters, lots of jockeys, riders, horses. Um, that's an ideal gift yeah, for anyone with an interest in racing. You know, it's uh, from O'Brien Press. That's a gorgeous book. And the kids' books now, I know there's, I mean, there's a glut of choice there, absolutely. Huge, uh, yeah. And again, for any child, you know, every child loves loves to get a book in a, in a, in a stock, a Christmas stocking, and, and great to keep them reading. Um, and at this time of year, there was so much choice, like we couldn't even mention a fraction of them. Um, but just to, to mention a few areas that have been huge, graphic novels have taken off it big time in the last couple of years. You know, people will be familiar with Dogman and 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 uh, Wimpy Kid and those type of which are going into that graphic novel form, which is mm. basically comic book format, yeah. and they're they're great for kids who are maybe reluctant to read or, or aren't very strong read, readers. It brings them into reading. Yeah. You know, they don't realise they're reading a book because it's done in this colourful comic book format, but they're they're. They are legitimate books, you know. Parents shouldn't be reluctant to buy their books, their their kids' comic, you know, the graphic novels, yeah. because it does develop their reading. Um, and we find that good readers love them as much as maybe reluctant readers. And you've a you've a great range of different series now of graphic novels. Um, say for older readers, you have the Heartstopper series, which became a Netflix series that has been hugely popular. That would suit you know from kind of fourteen up. Um, and as I said, Dogman, Cat Kid, Investigators, Tom Gates. You know, there's there's a range of, of graphic novels there to suit. And for a wide range of ages then. For a wide range of ages, yeah. yeah. From, from, you know, six or seven up, you're going to find uh, lots of choice. Yeah. Um, just talking about the local uh, writers again, Paddy Stapleton, another hurler. The hurlers are getting into yeah. writing books, <laughs> which is great. Uh, Paddy published a book a couple of years ago called Up in the Air, which was a huge success. So he's followed that up this year with a new one called Up in the Air Muckfest, which is, again, a story about a club hurling and featuring boys and girls. Suitable for age uh, 10 plus, I would say. The reading, right. even up to about 14. 
um, th- this will suit and, and they've been hugely popular and Paddy's also published a book for young readers called My First Hurley it's, it's a little picture book. book yeah so suitable from from three years of up, age up to maybe five or six um, a lovely book oh, that's um, great. called My First Hurley My First Hurley it's great to have the local it is yeah it is well it is because people know them and, and uh, you know they meet them and they can chat about their books and you know yeah. uh, and Paddy's been doing uh, school trips as well about it, with these books and reading from them so yeah. yeah no it's lovely to have, have local interest in those A great book that's caught my eye then this year is the one The Girls Who Slay Monsters fantastic book Yeah again back into myth and legend like we were talking about earlier on and, and kids are love myth and legend you know there's, there's lots of books lots of lovely picture books on Irish myth and legend but this one is particularly lovely it's uh, as you said Girls Who Slay Monsters Daring Tales of Ireland's Forgotten Goddesses so these are stories about uh, people, heroines we mightn't have heard of. And she's given their, their old Irish names um, and a beautifully produced book, yeah. Lee Bourne, Immortal Mermaid. You know, you, 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 it's not like the Tiernan Og or Salmon and Knowledge where everyone would have heard of the actual, or Maeve, the Queen of Connemara. Like people would have heard of those, but uh, these are stories we wouldn't have heard of before. Beautifully presented with fabulous artwork. I would say even that that isn't even a kid's book. I think that that's it, universal. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, somebody older would get as much enjoyment out of this. Yeah. And the reading level anyway is probably from maybe 12 or 13 up. Um, but a beautiful book to read, even to a younger child. Yeah. Um, you know, again, in that area of, of myth and legend. And then there's one more there in the picture books, a beautiful book by Paddy, Paddy Donnelly, who has written uh, some lovely picture books before, The Fox and Son Tailors, uh, which is about a firm of... Taylors, spelled T-A-I-L-E-R-S, and they're foxes, a beautifully produced book, um, lovely book for a five or six-year-old, lovely gift. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. John, it was great to sit down and go through some of the, the main books and recommendations for Christmas. In terms of, of customers and opening hours, what do people need to know? Yeah, we're open every day from half nine to six, open right up to Christmas Eve. Things do run out. That's the only thing that I would say to people that if you're if you're looking for a particular book, don't leave it too late because at this time of year, uh, publishers run out of books, uh, our wholesalers run out of books, we run out of books and we will have orders up to middle of, of the week uh, or even quite late in the week because Christmas Eve is Saturday. So um, don't leave it too late. If there's a particular book you're looking for, um, and, and you're keen to get it or you, you know you want a particular book, do uh, make sure to get to try and get in early and get it because, they, as I said, they do run out. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're here and we're on the phone and we're on the email, so um, no problem if anyone wants to, to contact us. Thanks to John and everyone at the Bookworm for that this morning. Um, just to bring you your final chance maybe to enter a competition, that's to win €500 Euro cash this coming Friday in association with Hall Alarms, who are celebrating 40 years in business. As you know, we've been playing uh, TV theme tunes this week and we played our one twice already this morning. This is your last chance. If you haven't entered already, this is today's tune.
I think most of you have it by now, but if you haven't entered and you're planning to, this is your last chance. You can text or WhatsApp us 83 or call them on 1800 It's your last chance. We'll announce today's qualifier uh, in the next 20 minutes or so. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. We were speaking earlier about this perceived lack of Christmas cards this year. A couple of uh, post people in touch with us this morning. One says, I'm a postie in Clonmel and we are chock-a-block with letters and parcels this year. Another says, "Um, you should ring a post person. We're inundated with Christmas cards and silly questions about have you much cards? We're getting absolutely sick of that question. So there you go. We were talking about maybe that tradition dying out and Tim was also in touch with us about another tradition, another Christmas tradition. He says, I wonder if the Wren Boys is still a a tradition on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day uh, where all the men would put boot polish on their faces and go around singing the Wren. Uh, That's from Tim into us on email this morning. Um, I think it depends on the area really, doesn't it, Tim? We would have Wren Boys around our area sometimes as well and I think it depends what area as well. If, if you've any more information on that or if you hunt the wren on St. Stephen's Day, let us know. 83 Now, UFC fighter Conor McGregor has come under fire for a tweet targeting comedian and broadcaster PJ Gallagher, where he mocked the fact that PJ was very open about his struggles with mental health. It's received huge coverage in recent days. And just to bring you exactly what he said, there are some words in it. As you can imagine that I can't read, but I'll read as much as I can. It says, at PJ Gallagher, you little sad pox of a thing. Sit upright and smile for a change, will you, you sad whatever. Ha ha ha, your wife left you in all and you're crying in the paper about depression. Posture like a prawn, you sad bee. I am Ireland. Don't forget it. There's blood on my flag. And there's a word there. I, I don't know what it is. You, you see or something like that. That tweet has since been taken down, it has to be said. But Dean McGrath is with Tipperary's Fight for Mental Health and he joins me now. Dean, good morning to you. Martin Nelson, good morning to your listeners. How are you doing? Good to talk to you, Dean. What do you make of this tweet? Because it's received a lot of backlash, so much so that he has taken it down and he wouldn't be one to take down tweets willingly. So obviously he's, you know, aware of the backlash it's received, but a lot of concern that it maybe would dissuade men from talking about mental health if they're going to be mocked for it the way PJ Gallagher has done. What do you make of this tobacco? Sure. Well, look, I suppose I, I, I'm looking at the positive side is, is that the reaction to, like, I don't pay, nor does anyone pay much attention to what Conor McGregor says. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I, I don't think they do. Just on the basis that, you know, I, I, I find that he's striving for some type of relevance in his own little world. And obviously hitting out and going as low as he wants to go with PJ Gallagher in relay, to, for a person who has been quite open. Um, look, of, of course, that's very unpleasant. It, it shouldn't have happened. It's completely below the belt. Like, not that that would matter to someone like Conor McGregor. I don't think that Morris maybe come into it in a lot of what he's done. But uh, I've been really um, 
I've been really kind of positive about the reaction to it because mm. he, like, people have really come out and said this is completely and utterly wrong. It's unacceptable. It's completely below the belt. PJ is, you know, remarkable for talking about his struggles um, as a man. Essentially, we, we all know the suicide statistics with with males. Um, to me, from the backlash he's received, and again, he's obviously t- took down his tweet or whatever, but it does show to me that the conversation has moved on from that type of regressionistic approach that he took. Um, and whether, like, words have meaning mm-hmm. and people have to be accountable. And I think it's easy for people like McGregor to say stuff on social media. Um, look, he always has his audience and whatever, but I don't think it has actually dissuaded anybody just based on the reaction, how strong, how... I suppose, passionately people are advocating for openness around mental health awareness. I think that, you know, it's a credit to PJ Gallagher that he's been as open as he has been talking about, you know, getting into the system and how difficult things have been for him. And I think that can only serve as a reminder to us all that um, awareness is there. Like, people have very much moved the conversation on from what Conor McGregor said. Yeah, you know? you're right. And the concern is that, just looking at Conor McGregor's um, page here now, on Twitter anyway, he has 9.7 million followers. So it's sure. a lot of people that he's sending out this message that it, if you're going to speak about your mental health, somehow you're, you're, you could be seen as being less of a man or it's not, you know, it's not a masculine quality to talk about mental health. That would be concerned. Like if you have a young... Um, impressionable person who who looks up to Conor McGregor and sees that it, it's going to send out a worrying message. Yeah, and, and I think that I, I think with, with with the platform that they have, like they do have responsibility, and there are a lot of young guys that would obviously still look up to McGregor. Now, I wouldn't be one to look up to McGregor. I, I think he's reprehensible in my own view. But look, if there are people looking up to it and they're being influenced by him, like. We have we can come so far past that type of logic, and really, like it's something that you might have seen maybe twenty, thirty years ago, where it was, you know, men men just need to get on with it, stiff upper lip, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And we know that that doesn't work, and we know that. Look, from my generation, why did me leave and start in twenty ten? Um, I, I I identified with a, a a quote that Blind by Boat Club used, and my generation are leaving the country. Or jumping in rivers, and that was my that was I said that is so true because I know so many young, especially men, who have taken their own lives for whatever pressure, and they didn't feel like they could talk about it, and they didn't feel like they could talk about the, how down they were. And when I think of that, and I think of all that goes with it, it just highlights how it's so important for us to counter such a negative message with a positive one that actually you can talk about what you're, you know, you can express your feelings. You can go and say, look, I'm struggling. Have a chat with one of your mates, have a, you know, whenever it might be. Because if we don't say that that's a conversation that people are willing to listen to, and they are, people are no more likely to talk. If if you name it, do you think you're considering suicide? You're not putting it in someone's head at all. Because they're, if they're thinking it, they're already thinking it. By naming it with them, you have the opportunity to have a conversation with them. And maybe, maybe that might be a light bulb moment for somebody to seek treatment, seek help, go to the GP, go to their, go to their A&E. And what McGregor's attitude would do would be to shut that down altogether. And unfortunately, we've done that in Ireland historically. And what it has led to 
is people killing themselves in droves and families being bereft in what is a health condition. That is very treatable if the support and the treatment is there. Dean, would you like to see Conor McGregor coming out to apologise for that tweet or do you think it makes no difference? I don't think it makes any difference with him really because I don't, I, look, I, it wouldn't be genuine anyway, in my own view. Mm. I think that he, maybe his marketing and his sponsors and all these people that still pay him money would come out and say, look, for the PR element, look, I, I have no interest in anything that Conor McGregor has to say. I have no interest in anything that uh, he stands for. Uh, to me, he is exactly everything that's wrong with modernization and, you know, uh, trends and social media and all of that. He should not be held up as an example for our young people. Why the people so? Who Can I ask why? I, for, on the basis that in terms of his moral values and his compass... like Just in relation I, to this tweet? Yeah, well, no, no I, I think that, that generally, yeah. like, in terms of his MMA career, like, and I, I'd be an MMA fan, like, he did break the mould and he brought MMA to Ireland. But he reached a particular peak when he won uh, the Unified World Championship. And since then, whether it be, you know, acting unaccountable to the law, getting caught speeding in Rotkool, having contempt for a judge, having, you know, hitting an old chap in a bar who didn't want to drink his whiskey, the various allegations of that have been made by women against him, um, that have been part of media reports, there's an awful lot of darkness there that I don't think our young people need to look up to. I think our young people need to look up to people that actually, you know, that do positive things. Mm. That the likes of Tom Delaney who won the hurler, like they're the type of role models, the tip minor hurlers, they're the type of role models we get our uh, young people should get their moral enforcement from. Not this Egypt. Yeah, you know? and, and the problem with McGregor is that he is seen for all of those things you say why he shouldn't be a role model. Those are the reasons why he is a role model because people see that he came from nothing. He's now... A, has to be probably a billionaire now at this stage, if not a multi-millionaire. And he came from nothing to do that and was very unapologetic about it. And there's aspects of that that are very attractive to young people in terms of, of looking up to him. Uh, certainly. And look, like, I'm working class. He's working class as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, what he achieved, absolutely. But it's how you carry yourself. Yeah. Like, he, he went up the ladder and pulled the ladder up after him. And he is basically just... I suppose, whether it's commenting about immigrants or refugees, as he has with the East Wall stuff, or throwing them under a bus, the throwing P.J. Gallagher under a bus. Like, we have what he's done and what he's achieved, and for all he's achieved, he's not classy at all. And for him, I do think that there is, that the money and the status and all of this stuff goes to your head. I've no doubt from what I've, you know, from the documentaries, he was a really sound working class guy when he was younger. Unfortunately, I think sometimes money can change people. And I would hope that coming from the community he comes from, that maybe at some point in the future, he may be able to rediscover those working class values that he once had and which drove him to the success that he had. Dean, would you be worried that this tweet, even though it's been taken down now, would you be afraid it's done damage? I know you, you, you've spoken about no. how you're, you're taking yeah. a positive from it. Yeah, um, and look, like, I, 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 think, I think that 90, 90, like, I think people that have those entrenched views about mental health and about stiff upper lip and all that stuff, I think they'll probably have them anyway. I think it might go to embolden a small minority into saying, yeah, this is what you have to do. But I think the vast majority of people have moved on. And, like, 
I suppose we're, when you're struggling and when people are in crisis, as PJ Gallagher was, he, he, he went and he got the support. And that's what we'd really want to come out of this message is that, look, there's a conversation, albeit it starts negatively, but like, this has shown you the wealth of public opinion and how people are actually there for, for others to reach out. And like ultimately, like if you, we can talk about locally about the fight for a separate waiting area in South to General Hospital mm. and stuff like that, you know, like like that's all, they're all organic, all organic campaigns that people are trying to push this forward to treat people that are in mental health distress with dignity, not to stereo, not to stereotype them or stigmatize them. You treat them absolutely like it's a health condition, and people need to talk the same as if you had diabetes or whatever. You take a medication, you take a medication for your depression, for your anxiety, for your bipolar, whatever you might have. But that's the message we have to come back to, Ali, you know. Yeah. And can I ask, how is that fight going, um, particularly when it comes to the separate area in, in A&E? Have, has there been any progress on that? Yeah, yeah. well, look, of progress, I, I struggle to use the word progress sometimes. Yes, we have some news, I suppose. Um, re- really, there is going to, so Southeast Community Healthcare are going to remodel um, the accident emergency unit in South Tip. Uh, general or TUH, sorry, as I as yeah. I should call it. Now it's a teaching hospital, which is fantastic. But yeah, they're they're going to remodel it. And I suppose there was a meeting with all the public reps, and a couple of um, a couple of the reps would have come out to say that there is consideration being given for how uh, they would manage presentations for people acute uh, ma- uh, presenting in acute distress. You know, mm. like this is. But of course, like Ali, like we've we've talked before, this is um, this sounds good. That this is okay. This is going to be considered. Delivery is a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, politicians coming out and they'll, you know, everyone wants to get a picture when a new bed of unit is there, but nobody wants to be accountable when there's overcrowding in TUH. You know, um, if if a new service for uh, Clonmel was announced tomorrow for mental health, they'd all be down there. But if you know, on a cold Saturday night when I when when there's a guy there and he's at his worst mm-hmm. and there's, you know, and everyone's moving around him and all that particular gentleman wants just a quiet place where he can just gather his thoughts because he's in one of the most acute episodes of his life. Mm. They don't want to be there then. So we have to be responsible and come back to that responsible politic of it all. Um, Again, whether whether it be Conor McGregor being responsible for what he says, whether it be our politicians on a structural level being responsible for advocating for further mental health support um, and action is really what we want. So that's a long answer, but... um, Yes, positive sounds, but I'll believe them when I see them and hopefully we can get active engagement from the hospital management on that as well. Dean, I imagine this is a very difficult time for many people and as someone on the ground as you are, are you finding that, that people are are looking for for help now more than other times of the year? Yeah, well, I I think you had um, Joe, Joe Lahey from Seesaw. He he, he would have said the same thing and I I read the article you had on the Tip FM website and sure, like, absolutely. I think um, grief is very hard and this is my own. Grief is hard at any time of the year when you've lost somebody or whatever. Um, Like, it's especially hard at Christmas. Um, So, of course, people will kind of tend to reach out. Like, the good thing about Christmas is is that if there are are family around, um, if if person has the family, you know, and but also the worrying thing about Christmas is people can feel extra alone. Yeah. You know, so of course Christmas is a difficult time. It's a, it's a brilliant, wonderful time for for many many people. And look, I do enjoy it, even though I'm accused of being a Grinch. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But um, like I think for for most people um who are in difficulty, it can be extremely delicate or uh, and extremely isolating for them. Yeah. 
Mm. But those people need to talk. Those people need to reach out if they're if you're feeling like that. And it's not that you have to talk to somebody like directly. Uh, you know, you can Google some support. You can text the court. There are supports there for people. It's just to take that step and and use them. And I think that's in in terms of people having the conversation. That's where we need to move to. You know, absolutely. And Dean, finally, anyone who is looking to reach out this Christmas, what are the best numbers for them? Who's the best person to contact? Like, look, there's a range of stuff, I suppose. Look, Childline has been quite supportive to, to, to our youth, um, quite good. Again, you have you have your Samaritans, you have the HSD text, text line. Look, I while there are a lot of numbers, there is your Pieta House, there is various different organisations. If someone's in distress, they'll all tell you the same thing. CareDoc, RANE if you're feeling that acute, that acute uh, bout is brought on, do not hesitate to get medical treatment. The, and a mental health crisis is a medical emergency and the staff in the A&E will try their very best to accommodate you, although it will be very busy, but I wouldn't let that put someone off going up there on the basis that that's where you need to go to get your medical treatment if you're in crisis. But again, the talk services and uh, again, the likes of the Samaritans, Childline, Pieta House, their jigsaw run a support line, the HSE run a support line, Seesaw will offer um, a certain amount of support over the Christmas period as well. So there is conversations out there waiting to be had if people want to reach out and take them. Dean, great to talk to you this morning and a happy Christmas to you. Thanks for all your work. Happy Christmas to yourselves and everyone at Tip FM as well. You do such great work and do great work for our community. So much appreciated and uh, enjoy. Thanks, Dean. All the best. Thanks. That's uh, Dean McGrath there from Tipperary's Fight for Mental Health. Uh, Just some texts in before I go to the break. Uh, Dean is talking a lot of sense. He does so much work behind the scenes. Pity there isn't more like Dean. That's from Lee. Hi, Elaine. Good morning to you. Another listener says, Conor McGregor is a fool. We're talking about mental health here. There are people out there who look up to that fool and will end up taking their lives because of the message that he is trying to get across. Mental health is a massive issue in this country. We don't need fools like him telling people it's weak to talk. It's okay not to be okay. Respect to PJ Gallagher. Keep those texts coming into us 083 311 We're back after this. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. Welcome back to TIP Today. Uh, Thanks to everyone who entered our competition to be in with a chance of being our daily qualifier today. That's our Hall Alarms giveaway. We're giving you a chance to win €500 cash at the end of this week. Um, what we're doing is we're playing TV theme tunes from the year 1982 because that's the year that Hull Alarms uh, began operations. Uh, well done to everyone who entered today and our qualifier today is Noreen Murnan in Dundrum. Well done to you, Noreen. You correctly guessed uh, that today's TV theme tune is Family Ties, a fantastic uh, TV show from the 1980s. One of my favourites, I have to say, was a great show. Uh, ran for a number of years, I think, and met a star out of Michael J. Fox. We'll have another one for you tomorrow. Uh, another TV theme tune from 1982. Um, as I said, we'll, we'll be having a daily qualifier every day and we'll have our winner um, on Friday on our Christmas show and we'll have a lot coming up on that Christmas show as well so it's definitely worth listening to Fran will be with you from 9 to 12 for our special Christmas show our last show 
our last tip today of 2022. Uh, now we have a caller on the line now. It's in reaction to our conversation about Conor McGregor. It's Patrick. Patrick, good morning to you. Good morning, Alison. How are you? I'm great, Patrick. Good to talk to you this morning. What do you make of this Conor McGregor debacle? To be honest, I think he's a vile human being. Um, He will target anybody or anyone just to get a... a, It's it's tactical reactions he looks for because it makes him feel like the big hard man. And in relation to your topic there and one that Fran had during the week with Joe Leahy, I, I for one, survived a suicide, the loss of my only sister 14 years ago. And this is my first Christmas after burying my mum. My message last week when I was talking with Fran, um, it's okay not to be okay. And Christmas is not a happy time for everybody. But I think for somebody with a celebrity status, Alan, Alison, to put out negativity like that. What kind of an example is that setting for the next generation upcoming? Yeah, I mean, I thought we'd we'd progress past that now, where where it was okay I to talk about feelings and, and express feelings. Um, you know, um, I spoke in depthly with Emma last week. I'm having a very emotional time at the moment. The loss of my mom seven months ago, my first Christmas, and. It's okay for men to cry. Mm. And we need to get this out there, you know. And we need to speak about our emotions. I'd gone, I would have told Goner the days when the man had to be hard and the breadwinner. And then you hear somebody like Conor McGregor coming out with these vile tweets, insulting a man who obviously had some sort of emotional breakdown and has spoken about it, I would clap that person on the back. Yeah. Because we need to talk about our emotions. If we don't talk about our emotions, what are we going to do? Clog up the A&E department and go on a bout of antidepressants? I don't want to do that. Yeah, I want to be me. I've had a good year, even though I've lost the most precious mum I could ever have wanted. But I'm getting there. Yes, it's going to be an emotional few days, but I've got good friends. I've got a wonderful family. So where I choose to be alone for Christmas Day, it's my choice. Yeah. But for somebody like McGregor to come out and assault a man and assault his personality and make him feel less of a man because he has spoken about his experience, um, with some sort of a mental issue. And mental health, it can be sparked by anything, Alison. Yeah. It can be a bereavement. It can be the breakup of a love affair. It could be your dog dying. Mm. You know, and yeah. these things in life are, they're, they're part of our makeup. But I do think we need to, um, and I was quite glad that that gentleman that you were speaking with um, previously mentioned the likes of you know, CISO, um, Pieta House and stuff like that, because people need to talk. And sometimes, even though you're surrounded by lovely, caring friends, which I have, and I've got a wonderful dad, 
sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that's the point Dean was making. Patrick, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you for joining us. Uh, just before I let you go this morning, I wanted to bring you an interesting article that's uh, breaking at the Independent this morning. Uh, we've always suspected that maybe cash was another... A uh, thing that was dying out in society that we're becoming a cashless society. You might be interested to hear that cash is fast being dethroned as king as Irish consumers now increasingly switch to cards and mobile apps. Irish people have also emerged as some of the most prolific online shoppers in the 19-member Eurozone. That's according to a European Central Bank survey. It says the majority, or 54% of Irish consumers in store transaction were in cash in 2022, while 37% were on card. Cash use is down 14 points on 2019 and is below the Eurozone average of 59% in 2022. And I remember when when AIB first um, announced the closure of a number of branches across the county. Uh, they later U-turned, of course, on that decision. But a lot of people that we spoke to in the subsequent days were very suspicious about what they felt was this push towards a cashless society and was something that they certainly did not welcome. We'll revisit it during tomorrow's tip today. We'd love to hear your views on it. You can uh, Contact us again for the next few minutes, 83 311 or Emma will still be by the phones, 1800-938-007. Or, of course, you can always contact us on email, tiptoday at tipfm.com. That's it for us for today. Thanks for all your calls and all your texts. Thanks to Emma on production. Fran is back with you again tomorrow morning from 9am. Stephen is up next with the Lunchtime Show. Until then, have a great day. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.